I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Essie Weingarten, founder of the nail polish company Essie. Essie is available in roughly 25,000 salons in more than 100 countries. Essie launched in 1981 with $10,000, and the company was bought by L'Oreal in 2010. Essie is from Hollis Hill, Queens. Welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, Jessica. Before we get started, I'm noticing that you are wearing some red nail polish. Can I see your hands for a second? What do you call that color? She's pampered. When did that color come out? Probably about 10 years ago, but it's so apropos now since I'm not working and I'm enjoying life and I feel very pampered. When did you get them done? Yesterday, as a matter of fact. How did you come up with the name She's Pampered? It was from a collection where it was all about opulence, and this was one of six colors, and it always is about the theme. Mm -hmm. So She's Pampered just looked right to me. It was like a rosy red, and it looked like any woman could wear it when she's feeling really special. People who know the brand Essie, uh, who use the nail polish, they know you for your names, as well as uh, other attributes. Names range from Wicked to Fancy Pants, Tomboy No More, Rockstar Skinny. And I feel like these names are just on the right side of naughty. Can you talk to us about your your thinking surrounding the names? Well, I always wanted to have a personality. So if the names had a personality, women would remember them. If it's numbers, it's so impersonal, and it's like, what number is it? If they don't remember the whole name, they remember something about the name. And there's a very funny story. A woman met me, and she said to me, oh, my God, you're Essie? I was in a salon, and this woman asked for dancing shoes. And I said, that's not one of my colors. And she said, no, 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 I know it's one of your colors. I said, I don't have anything called dancing shoes. To make a long story short, she was talking about ballet slippers. Mm. And I said, oh, got it. Okay, ballet slippers? When we went through the whole thing, Mm -hmm. which, you know, everyone talks about ballet slippers when they're talking about a delicious pink color. And to me, it was my day's of Miss Lee at ballet school. Mm. And everyone else wore black leotards and I wore pink leotards. So it was always that childhood memory of me being feminine and special. And when the Queen of England wanted the Essie ballet slippers, I received a letter with the royal crest. And it was HRH. And it was the hairdresser of the Queen of England. And basically, he asked if I would sell them the polish. And I said, of course. He wanted to know if I could chip it immediately. And I said, I'll hand deliver it. <laughs> I mean, I was so, I thought I, you know, arrived at the moon. So Queen Elizabeth wears ballet slippers. Wouldn't it be funny if she wore like bikini sotini? I would love it. I think it would be so chic on her toes. <laughs> Speaking of Queen Elizabeth, there was another woman uh, in the early days who really kind of uh, helped you become. And I'm thinking of Joan Rivers. Oh, Were you Jelly thinking Apple. of Joan Rivers? Yes. Joan was very special. She was on Johnny Carson. She was uh, basically, I think she was sidekick that night, and Johnny asked her what she was wearing. And she said, on the Tonight Show, I'm wearing Jelly Apple by Essie. And I did get to thank her Mm. before she died Mm. in person. And, I mean, that was a very special day in my life. 
Where were you? Were you watching the show coincidentally? Yes, I was. I mean, I was a Johnny Carson fanatic, so Mm -hmm. I didn't miss a show. If I was home, I saw it. And this was in 1983? It was probably 81 or 2. So you didn't know this was coming to you. Can you describe that moment? Were you you by yourself sitting on your couch? I was in bed listening to... Joan Rivers and Johnny, and all of a sudden, it was like, did I hear right? And you pinch yourself. They're talking about my baby. Did you get phone calls that night, do you remember? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, lots of calls. And by the next morning, it was like everyone was talking about it. And by the way, this is before uh, social media, and this is before you're able to watch the show again and again on YouTube. You were lucky to have seen it. Otherwise, you would have just heard about it. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. How the world has changed. Right. So I want to go back to 1981 when you decided to launch Essay with $10,000. How did you muster the $10,000? Where did that come from? I was working. I worked um, at Henry Bendel for... A couple of years, uh, I was going to FIT in the evening, and then after Bendel's, I went to work for a ladies' hosiery company that was owned by two brothers, and they did private label pantyhose. Do you remember like the moment when you went in and you told your boss, you know what, I'm doing this company, I'm off on my own? Yeah, I do. I said I was leaving, and he was not happy, and basically said, we're not going to give you the 10-year pin. And I went, I'll have to live without it, and uh, I moved on. When you are ready to go, you got to go. I love that you didn't you didn't get your 10-year pin. No. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Essie Weingarten, founder of Essie, a nail polish company with more than 300 colors. The company was bought in 2010 by L'Oreal. What other ideas did you have for starting a business other than nail polish, or did you have a maniacal focus? On- I was pretty focused that there was no one doing colors that were great, a formula that would be looking wet mm-hmm. for a whole week, and if I found the chemist to do it, and all major chemical companies and cosmetic companies were looking at the big picture. They were looking at foundations where the money is. Nails, the money wasn't in nails. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 1981, there were only two big companies doing nail polish. And I just thought that, you know, it made me feel special if women started getting their nails done because in 1981, women who had their nails done were very wealthy. It wasn't a luxury that we have today where everyone can have their nails done, mm-hmm. the affordable luxury. So I went looking for a chemist, and that was it was a whole year of really getting ready when I found the right chemist, and he gave me a few formulas, and I tested them out, and I found the formula that I loved. Then I had to give him colors, and I was saving ribbons and pin cushions. And from all my travels, I saved colors that really spoke to me, incredible colors that were sharp and clean, and clean was very important. I didn't, at that particular point, there were no muddy colors in my life, and um, he had to match the colors. And I know you're going to laugh, but I started with 12 colors. Mm-hmm. I mean, you try to start a line today with 12 colors, people would just turn their back on you. But it was such a different world. And I was a pioneer. I changed the way women think of nail color. It became a fashion accessory that if your nails are not polished, you're not dressed. 
Right. And as you're talking to me, I'm I'm curling my nails into my shirt so you don't see that I'm not wearing nail polish. <laughs> well, you're half dressed. <laughs> so you found this chemist who really, you know, helped helped you get everything off the ground. Where who, what was his or her name and where was He was in New Jersey and his name was Stanley. He's no longer with us unfortunately, but he was a very big part of my success. I mean, I've always had an amazing team around me. He just listened. So you you launched with these 12 colors, and what did the names range from? Well, some of them are still in the line. Bordeaux, which is like a very good bottle of red wine. It's a deep, delicious burgundy color. And Blanc and Baby's Breath. Blanc is that true chalk white, and Baby's Breath was a softer white for a French tip of a French manicure, which was a very big part of our beginning. Very popular in the early 80s. Yes. So you launched and you decided uh, to go to Las Vegas when you launched uh, because the women in casinos, you know, they had hands that everyone saw. And also it was a meeting place of sorts for women from all the coasts who traveled there. Can you talk about what, what you did in Las Vegas? Yeah. I mean, it was very important to me that I go to a place where I get the best bang for my buck. And I thought Las Vegas in 81 between showgirls, dealers, dancers, that were always in the public eye, that always had to have beautiful hands and beautiful feet. If I could get them to try the Essie polish, wow. Once you try it, you're hooked. It's the best addiction around. And it did work. I just left samples at every beauty salon, and there were less than 100 in 1981 and every hotel spa. I left them a little plastic bag with 12 colors and three treatments, and I said, call me if you like it. Within two weeks, every single one of them called and placed an order, and I was like, yes, I have a business. You were in your early 30s at the time. Do you remember even the trip to Las Vegas with all of this nail polish in your bag? Absolutely. It was like yesterday. We went to Kennedy Airport, because it was a nonstop flight, um, and you were allowed to take whatever you wanted on the plane. I mean, I must have had 10 cartons weighing 64 pounds each. There was no not, not a problem. Yeah. If you had 10 suitcases, they took 10 suitcases. So you got this approval from Las Vegas immediately, but you also uh, walked the streets of New York City, which is your hometown. Can you tell us about what that looked like? Absolutely. I was very organized. So if I started on 96th Street, I did 96th, 95th, 94th, 93rd, from York mm -hmm. to 5th. Then I took 86th Street and went down from there. Then I did the West Side. Mm -hmm. I mean, we years ago, there weren't nail salons in every corner. I know you can't believe it. There were beauty salons. And oh, beauty parlors. Beauty parlors, exactly. Mm -hmm. Some of the salons listed in the yellow pages. <laughs> I didn't have a cell phone. Can you imagine? And you'd go up, and they were like, really not salons. And you would run down the stairs because what there wasn't they? even elevators in the building. What were they? Uh, if not? It was something like, lady, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't think I belong here. Let me leave. They were a different type of salon. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. Did you have uh, problems with making enough to fit, to fit the demand in the early days? Well, the truth of the matter is, um, when I first started, I didn't think I'd ever be able to sell all the bottles that I had to because it was a minimum of gallons that you had to buy. And I'll never forget, they said to me, uh, the minimum order is 55 gallons. And I went, 
And how many bottles do I get from one gallon? One gallon is 200 bottles. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. How am I going to sell one color? and 10,000 know, bottles, mm-hmm, roughly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, not a problem mm. because if the color's right and the quality is right, it's a give me. Everyone wants it. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Essie Weingarten, founder of the nail polish company Essie. We'll hear more from Essie coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Essie Weingarten, founder of the nail polish company Essie. Essie is available in roughly 25,000 salons in more than 100 countries. Essie launched in 1981 with $10,000, and the company was bought by L'Oreal in 2010. The names that you come up with really are autobiographical in a way. They come from some fragment of your life. Can you give examples? I mean, we have such funny stories. We were doing a trade show in Mexico City, and we went to hail a cab. And we saw the traffic wasn't moving. So we said, never mind. Now, in Mexico City, the taxis are little Volkswagen bugs. And the taxi drivers wear white gloves, and they open the door with, like, this little handle thing. And I went, never mind, never mind. And he yells out, you sand of a beach. It was like he was practicing this curse, and he knew I was American. And he, well, needless to say, I had to come up with a color called sand of the beach. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we were in Paris July 4th, and I fell on my behind. It was pouring rain. We were going to Café Foucault. So I came up with a color right after that very quickly called Café Fagot, because I never want to forget Café Fagot. when we were looking for a home in the Hamptons. So I came out with a collection, and the colors were, like, very important because it was south of the highway or Montauk the End or Dune Road or Picket Fence. It was something to do with the beach. And everyone said to me, oh, but the Hamptons, who's going to know about the Hamptons? Only people in New York. Well, it turned out that everyone in Europe wanted the Hampton Collection. Everyone in Asia wanted the Hampton Collection. Everyone in the Middle East wanted the Hampton Collection. So it was just, I have to have the Hampton Collection Mm -hmm. because everyone wants a piece of the Hamptons. Going back to the early days of getting interest from New York salons, do you have any recollections of one or two uh, beauty parlors that uh, really helped to escalate sales for you? Absolutely. Um, There was a place called Nail Nook on 2nd Avenue. It's no longer there. And 70, I guess it was 75th Street. And then Ruzika de Felica, we had uh, Josephine Allen, who was on top of Yellow Fingers, mm-hmm. and now she's at Essie Flagship Salon on 65th between Madison and Park. For the first few years, you had a different bottle. Now there's this iconic bottle uh, that's square-shaped, and it has your name, Essie. Your real name was Esther, but you were never called that. Down the side. How did you decide to make that shift? Well, when I first started, and I went to the glass Um, company, I said I wanted my own mold. And he said to me, well, to have your own mold, you have to sell at least 2 million bottles a year. And I went, oh my God, how am I going to do that? Well, shortly thereafter, within the first four years, I was able to do it with no problem. Two consecutive years, and the bottle manufacturer said to me, if you really want to do your own mold, we can do it. And I said, it's 
really important to me. Um, I needed something that would be very comfortable in the manicurist hand because she's holding the bottle all day. I always like very angular things. I like straight lines. I'm not about roundness. And I came up with this bottle, which is round on the inside, but square on the outside. And all the edges are soft round. So it fits right into the nail tech's hand and the weight is evenly distributed. Now, the anatomy of a bottle is, as you described, the bottle itself, but there's also the brush, and there's a little metallic, is it a steel ball inside? Two stainless steel mixing balls. If you have one, it doesn't do anything. You need the friction of the two balls hitting each other, Mm -hmm. and that's just to keep everything blended. So you just roll it in your hands. You don't shake it because Mm -hmm. the two mixing balls can break through the glass. So you roll it and you keep the polish nice and fresh. And the brush, is there anything special about the hairs or anything? Absolutely. Our brushes were custom made for us. All the brushes had 199 hairs and we always kept the brushes very thin so you can get into the corners. So you have a nice, neat manicure. You grew up in Hollis Hills, Queens, and your father ran a party rental business, uh, and he died when you were 16, and then your mom took over the business. Correct. He died a a week before my 16th birthday. How did he die? Pancreatic cancer. And my mother never worked a day in her life. She was... You know, she was, life was on a silver platter. So your mom was left with uh, her five children and started running this business. Did you help out in the business at all? Of course, I still do. What was done? Like, so you you rented chairs and tables and balloons and... Everything for a party. It's still in your family? Yes, it is. Who runs it now? Party time. My mom and my sisters, uh, two sisters are full-time and, yep. Out of Queens? Yes, Queens Boulevard in Elmhurst. Your mom was the one who took you, by the way, to your manicures starting when you were like six years old. If you were a good girl in ballet, she would take you to get your nails done. Absolutely. And that was the only time I sat still. And I sat for one hour blowing them dry because there was no such thing as quickie drops or anything like that. You had to sit or else you smudged and you had a mess. So I wanted them to be perfect. So I sat there. There were not many colors to choose from, uh, you know, at the time. What what companies uh, did you use? Do you even remember as a six-year-old? I, I do remember. There were only two. One was Revlon, and the other was L'Oreal. And that's the joke of the whole story. And there I am, 29 years later, selling my baby to L'Oreal. Your father also was complicit uh, in this nail polish love affair of yours. He would take you to an apothecary owned by his brother, uh, owned by a cousin, uh, Mm -hmm. to pick out even more colors. Absolutely. Do you know where the um, Mac store is on Fifth Avenue and 59th Street? Mm. That's you, There used to be a hotel called the Savoy Plaza Hotel, and that's where Uncle Ralph had his apothecary. Mm-hmm. And we'd go visit Uncle Ralph on Sunday after the Lower East Side, and my dad would let me pick out colors that I would hold in my hand as my conscience for that whole week. I want to talk about partnerships, the most important of which was with your husband, Max Sortino, who was the CEO for a while yes. uh, before you sold the company to L'Oreal. How did you meet Max? Met Max in California at a trade show. He wanted to buy the only publication that was available 
at that time, which was called mainly manicuring. And instead of purchasing mainly manicuring, he met Essie. (laughs) And he was really originally from Rome, Italy, and living in California. And at the time, he, he, was, he was in business with his ex-wife um, selling jewelry for the nails. Correct. You know, everyone said, oh, Essie, you need a European man. They're the only ones that'll understand a woman in business. Mm. And, and it was just a great fit. And at what point did he join you in the business? Was that a no-brainer, or did that take some... Once he moved to New York, he joined me. And Max was always the visionary. I didn't have the name in the glass. Mm-hmm. I just felt that every salon loved the polish, and they would put their own label on it. And he said, who's putting their label on it? So it was his idea to put Essie on the bottle. Absolutely. Another good idea. <laughs> Not all of them, but most of them. What were some ungood ideas? Oh, well, everyone wanted a, a lipstick to match the nail polish. And, you know, everyone would ask you for it. And it is a great idea. But there are no makeup artists in the salons telling the woman, try this color. Mm. It looks great on you. It just sits there collecting dust. So how long did you dabble in lipstick? Oh, uh, probably about five years. We didn't Mm -hmm. give up right away. You know, the truth of the matter is Essie was born about colors. I mean, that's what I'm known for. Colors are on my life. What does your apartment look like? Is it colorful? No, it's not, as a matter of fact, because I was always working in color, so the apartment is very much white and dark brown. Lots of woods, different woods, different textures. Very simple, because everything else is what I do every single day of my life. What other other mistakes? Oh, plenty of mistakes. If we didn't make mistakes, we would have never grown. Oh, we came out with a second line. That was a mistake. What's the second uh, it was, line? It was called Max. And then we had to change the name to Club Max because one of our competitors went to P&G's and said we were trading under the name of Max Factor, which it was not Max Factor. It was my husband, Max. Um, P&G, Procter uh, & Gamble, yeah, right? Yeah, P&G. Did you ever have other investors? Aside? Never. So it was all run by your sales, all the capital that you That's got it. from your sales. And, of course, my mother said to me, you know, you have a year and you'll see what happens. And she said, if it doesn't work, it wouldn't be a Shondo, which is a shame. And that's all I had to hear. I said, you'll wait and see. There'll be no shame here. Your mom, was she helpful in the business? Of course. She even came to trade shows. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's amazing. I mean, she's the rock. She really gave us very good values, and we all had to work. And um, she never takes no for an answer. Uh, You know, we've learned that from her. And Were you brought up in a religious household? Well, we had two sets of dishes. We had a kosher so you were, home. You were so Jewish and Jewish kosher. And yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. Lots of times that we mixed up the silverware and it was like, oh, my God, you have to put it in the dirt outside. Our friends would say, oh, you, you have flowers and silverware growing in your garden? <laughs> so, you know, fun things. Yeah. Always fun. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Essie Weingarten, founder of Essie, a nail polish company with more than 300 colors. Essie is available in roughly 25,000 salons in over 100 countries. You mentioned that one of the two nail polish companies that sold nail polish when you were your six- and seven-year-old self, you know, getting a manicure, was L'Oreal. And little did you know that you would sell the company. So 
L. Essie to L'Oreal, you know, in 2010. You had an initial flirtation with L'Oreal in 2005 when they came to you and was interested in an acquisition. Can you talk about the 2005 conversation? Well, I got a phone call in the office, and the switchboard operator said, there's a call from L'Oreal. Well, everyone in the office, like, their ears perked up. They really wanted to buy the company, and we were not big enough, number one, and number two, we didn't want to sell the company. There's no reason to sell the company. We said goodbye, and they said they'd never come back. That was in 2005. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 2010, and L'Oreal approaches you again. Why were things different this time? Well, we were growing like crazy. I mean, when the economy started to tank in 2008, our business was on fire. At that point, in 2007, business was really good, and we started with an architect. We were going to be adding onto our building. We were expanding the parking lot, and we were going up. And then as the economy started to get funky in 2008, I put the stop sign up, and I said, let's wait and see what's going to happen. Instead, our business just kept on growing double digits, and we were busting at the seams. Of course, he was right, and we should have built. It was 2009, Christmas, when I got a phone call wishing us um, a Merry Christmas, and I said, they're back, because they said they would never come back. And after that phone call, we didn't hear from them again till I think it was the end of February. And when they called again, they said they want a deal and they want it quick. They were afraid that I was going to back out of the deal, which I could have done very easily. But, you know, if I make a commitment, my word's my bond, and I stick by it. So, but why, why did you sell? Because we were busting by the seams. I mean, we really were working like three shifts around the clock. Um, we had no more room. Mm-hmm. It was, so you needed capital to expand? Or? No, we had yeah. the capital. We just yeah. needed, you needed location. Mm-hmm. Number one, I mean, we had, we were very aggressive with inventory, always were, um, always had containers on the ocean coming in from Italy constantly, mm-hmm. always was aggressive with chemicals. I mean, lots of pails, lots of, I mean, I was never out of stock and everyone knew it. You wanted something. You never had to wait for it. And that was, you know, that was part of the magic formula. California, they got it in a week. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, they had it the next day, and everyone knew it. I spoiled my customers rotten, and I loved every minute of it. Essie is available in over 100 countries, and the first country was Japan. We were in over 100 We thought 109 when we sold the company. And then they came back to us after the due diligence and said, you didn't tell us the truth. You were in 114 countries. Do you notice anything uh, culturally different between like what Americans want on their nails versus a woman in Jordan? Do you even sell in Jordan, for example? Yes, we do, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is when we were in Kuwait, which was quite interesting, there were women praying. And... The cultural difference was before they pray, they have their polish removed. And after they're done praying, they get their nails done again. So it's a really great market. And I thought that was something so interesting. And in Dubai, of course, it's completely different. 
But we were doing a shoot for a magazine, and there was this woman wearing a burqa. And I said, would you like to be in the article? And she said she would. And she took off her burqa, and I never saw anything so beautiful in my whole life. She was a banker. And she said, if my husband sees this, he'll kill me. And I thought I would die. I mean, and this is like only 2008 or nine. This is in Dubai? In Dubai. You're saying, wow, the world has moved so fast, and then you find these little clusters where women are still living in the past. Where do you get your nails done? I get my nails done at Samuel Shariki on 65th Street. When you do get manicures at other places, um, when the people don't know you, do you tell them that you are Essie? No, of course not. Um, my uh, little stepson would always say, you know who she is? And I would say, Ben, don't do that. <laughs> ben comes with you to get your nails done sometimes? Oh, Ben would be there, yeah. <laughs> they get ever? very nervous, I will tell you. they When they find out, they get real, extremely nervous. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but they do. Did they? Was there ever a time they didn't believe you that you were indeed Essie? Well, you know, sometimes I'd go into a salon and it wasn't even to get a manicure, just to be selling product. And I would say, hi, I'm Essie. And they would say, Manny, Manny. And I said, no, 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 I'm Essie. <laughs> Hello, I just want to, you know, introduce myself. And uh -huh. they get a little bit confused. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was always fun. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the business card always worked. Right. Now, uh, the market has changed a bit. I mean, it used to be basically exclusively women. And now more and more men are going into salons. And male grooming is, you know, increasing in importance to men. Do you know many men who get their nails polished? Absolutely. A lot of them will get one color of either one coat of Mademoiselle, which my husband happens to wear, because it just looks like a good finish, almost like a woman's uh, blush. So it's a little bit of something, but it's no one could tell it's a color. And then some men are really getting color. In LA, you'll see men wearing uh, a lot of sandals, flip flops, and they have pedicures, and they're wearing color. And the first time I saw it was Seal, and he was wearing Dominica Green. Seal the singer? Seal the singer, and then he was wearing Aruba Blue, and I went like, Heidi, yes! Um, you know, and I've been really fortunate from A to Z, and when I say A to Z, all these celebrities from Angelica, you, you know, Angelica Houston to Renee Zellweger, they all wore Essie, and they would share it and tell you these stories. And I never did any um, celebrity endorsements. They wore it. They spoke about it because they loved it. And I mean, how lucky can a woman be? Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Jessica. Thank you. My guest has been Essie Weingarten, founder of Essie. Coming up, we'll meet Ethan Brown, founder of Beyond Meat. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Ethan Brown, founder of Beyond Meat, a company that makes meat using plant protein instead of animal-based protein. The goal is to make a healthier product that looks and tastes and smells like chicken or beef using fewer natural resources and reducing the amount of pollutants. The single largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions is livestock. Roughly 1,800 gallons of water is used to make one pound of steak. 
Ethan launched Beyond Meat in 2009, and the company's products are found in stores across the United States, including Whole Foods and Walmart. Ethan is originally from Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I want to start by talking about meat's issues. Can you um, give me some more detail around that? If you look at human health and you look at you know, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, you know, there's a growing recognition that there's a link between meat consumption and, and those uh, health epidemics. Uh, and you know, the World Health Organization probably did the most definitive work most recently where they put um, meat in, in, a, in a category, processed meat in a category that was the same as, um, as cigarettes. Then you go to, to climate. When animals are breathing, they're emitting carbon. And so it seems like a minor issue, but if you think about the number of animals we have on the Earth's surface and the fact they're all breathing, and you add that up, you actually come up with about 14% of greenhouse gas emissions being attributed to, to actually just the fact that animals are on their surface in such numbers and are breathing. Then you look at natural resources. All across the country, we're having you know, resource issues of one kind or another, depending on where you live. And then last, you look at animal welfare. Now, people on a handheld can see how their food's being made. And I think more and more people are saying, you know, I'm not in agreement with that particular system. You said just the fact that the animals breathe yields a certain amount of carbon. Well, what about human beings? I mean, yeah. we breathe carbon dioxide, and of course that yields, that helps with photosynthesis. Yeah. But is there an amount of carbon even beyond that that yeah. also leads to, well, so, has so, a de- deleterious effect? To put it in context, you know, we, we raise and we slaughter about 66 billion animals a year, right? So think, you know, the, the human population is big, but it's a tenth of that, right? You know, so so uh, that's the issue. So why isn't there more regulation? We think of the auto industry, for example, highly regulated to decrease uh, the amount of pollution that it yields. Why has not the same amount of regulation uh, existed in agribusiness? Is it just because of the strong lobbyists? You know, it's a really interesting question, and I think it goes deeper than that. Um, I mean, certainly that is a factor. It's one thing to you know put a new app out, or or you know, I always talk about the landline versus a cell phone and that quick transition we had. It's another thing to change how we eat protein, right? I mean, it is protein was such an important part of of, of how we evolved. Prior to even when we were you know Homo sapiens, meat played an enormously important role in in our development. You know, if you think about the human brain when we started to consume meat, it was about 600 cubic centimeters. You know, over the course of evolution, and I think largely due to nutrient-dense food uh, that meat is, uh, it grew to about 1,300 cubic centimeters, right? And what was happening was not only were we getting this really good nutrition, right, but it was uh, reducing the workload on our stomachs. So all that excess energy could go to our brains. It would be unwise for me to say that people shouldn't eat meat. I think that's a mistake, right, because I believe that meat is central to who we are. Um, what I do think is possible and really exciting is that you can get away from the idea that meat has to come from an animal. And with the science we have and the understanding we have today of what meat is, you can build a piece of meat directly from plants. So if we ask you know, anybody, well, what is meat? They'd say, oh, it's uh, the tissue that comes from an animal. Yes. So how would you define meat? You know, the historical understanding, right, is, you know, and, and more, more recently uh, is, you know, chicken has to come from a, like a, a meat has to come from a chicken, cow, or pig. The composition of meat is something different, right? The composition of meat is basically amino acids, it's lipids, it's very small amount of carbohydrates, it's trace minerals, and it's water, and it's predominantly water. Mm-hmm. You know, that list of things that I just presented, none of those are exclusive to the animal. They're all present in plants. So let's say you take a pea plant. Right. Uh, walk me through how that pea becomes a, a ersatz chicken right. strip. So you take the pea, and you basically mill it, and you have to separate 
the, uh, the protein uh, from the fat. So what you do is you put an aqueous solution, a water-based solution in place where um, you change the pH levels and that will separate out the protein from the carbohydrates and from the fat. Where do you get your plants now? The peas that we use are actually grown in, in Canada and grown in France. But it's not about the particular plant. It's really about the idea that the plant kingdom is a source of amino acids, right? And so if you think about it that way, there's an enormous number of plants that we could use to, to, to take protein from. And it's it really interesting ones like cottonseed has great protein. We would never do this, but tobacco leaves has a pretty good source of protein, right? Um, lupin, camelina, mustard seed is one of my favorites. So there's all these different places you can pull protein from. So anyway, so, so we mill it, we, it, it it's, it's, it's crushed basically, it, it's separated. Right, and and this is done by a supplier of ours, and then we we take that that protein, right, and we run it through a really simple process of heating, cooling, and pressure. And the machine is an extruder is, that exactly. does the heating and the cooling and the pressure. Exactly. Yeah. Is anything lost by changing the uh, the shape of the protein? You know, I think of like boiling broccoli; you lose so much of the nutrients rather than steaming it. Right. Right. What's cool is that it's basically been stripped down to its protein. Right, mm-hmm. and so you're just changing the form. You're stitching it together in a new way, but there's not some sort of fundamental conversion where it becomes a lesser protein. So you're trying to mimic meat. Have Have you thought of calling it something else? Because in a way, maybe when you started out, you thought, well, how can I re- make a replacement for meat? But aside from those people who have been eating meat uh, who are alive, I mean, there, you have new generations of people being born. Yeah. You could call it plant yeah. or whatever word you want to put <laughs> to it. My mother is after me for the exact same thing. Every time we talk about it, she said, why are you trying to? I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> um, because uh, what we talked about uh, with respect to the role that meat has played in our culture, uh, I'm really focused on providing a absolutely convincing piece of meat just yeah. made from plants. Yeah. So I want to go back to the early days. Uh, you graduated uh, from Columbia Business School and went to work at Ballard pa- Power Systems, which is a fuel cell company uh, making clean batteries, basically. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah clean fuel cells, yeah. So you've, you've always had kind of this con- conservation ethos. Um, how, where did that arise? It certainly comes from my dad. When I was growing up, uh, you know, I always think about my dad in this way: that, that have you ever seen a deer like in Central Park? Like they just don't belong. They're like scared. They're like, I gotta get out of here. That's like that's my dad. <laughs> he hates the city, and so every chance he got, he would pack our car up and he would drive us out to our farm. But he taught me there uh, about the natural world, and I fell in love with it. My dad is a professor. He's at McGill now, but when I was a kid, uh, he was at the University of Maryland. We have a farm in the western part of the state that was supposed to be a hobby farm. We turned it into a real business where we had uh, Holstein dairy cattle. We had 100 head of Holstein dairy cattle. At what point did you start thinking about this idea of meat replacement? What was the catalyst for getting to this topic? Uh, it took me a really long time. Um, and really about courage, I think, uh, first and foremost, and, and a willingness to, to let my own heart speak to, to who I am versus what I thought people thought I should be. Um, what did you think they thought you should be? Um, so I, uh, you know, had like formal training and, and was like very focused on climate through energy. I just felt that it wasn't serious enough to like go start like some kind of tofu factory. You know? <laughs> like, but I had this sense that, you know, there was something amiss. You started reading about livestock and the meat industry, and you came across a paper written by two professors at the University of Missouri, Fu Hang Shei and Harold Huff. Yeah. What was their paper about, and how did you find them? 
I was thinking about how do I get into this field. So I started to uh, make some small investments in, in restaurants that were doing well uh, serving plant-based food. And everything that we were doing, we had to basically disguise the product in something. I, I, I just began to think about the science behind it. So there's no reason that you need to run all this through an animal. And so I started reading. And it's really a story about the Internet. I mean, I like literally would just stay up at night and read whatever I could find. Right. And um, over time, I came over across uh, what Fu Hung was doing and what, what Harold was doing. And I called them up and, and said, hey, I'd like to come out and talk to you. At what point did you decide, OK, we're going to partner and I'm going to license the technology from right. you? So they they had actually, you know, this extrusion has been around for a long time. What they did was develop a, basically a set of variables uh, that it was. Let's think about it like a lock on a safe, like. You, know, you can know that you have to have three numbers there, but if you don't know the sequence and everything else or the numbers, you're kind of stuck. And so they found the exact right combination of heating, cooling, pressure that I felt created this really realistic muscle form, this mm-hmm. restitching a protein into muscle form. I would basically produce as much as I possibly could in a day at the University of Missouri in their lab, right? And then uh, we would take it back. I would take it back to Maryland. I would fly back, you know, hundreds of pounds of chicken, and we didn't have a place to store it, so I would put ice in my bathtub. So you would just uh, jump on a commercial airplane with yeah, yeah. with a, a sack of uh, yeah. chicken? And there's funny episodes like where some, one, once it opened in the overhead and started falling out chicken, and Southwest was like, what's wrong with you? You can buy those big bags from Southwest for like 35 bucks. So mm-hmm. I would show up at the airport with as cold as I could keep it. Stored so, in the overhead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, sometimes the, the, the um, boxes would open, and people were like, what are you carrying? Why do you have all this chicken? And I'd be like very flattered. I'd be like, thank you for asking that way. But um, Glad you think it's chicken. Yeah, exactly. But to answer about how did I license it was really interesting. And, we were working on this for a long time. I was up at our, our, our farm, and um, our neighbor, my neighbor came over to me and said, uh, I just read about this chicken that's being developed in the University of Missouri. I was like, wait, that's the product I'm working on. But Time Magazine had run an article, and the sort of press office of the University of Missouri had orchestrated it. And so, you know, I was like, I called up Harold, and I said, Harold, what are you doing? Like, this is, we, we were partners. He said, you know what? Uh, they were under very sharp orders to, to basically just do this, to not communicate it, et cetera. But you know what? They were like, they got inundated with calls. Like all these big corporations wanted to license it. Absolutely incredible to me. Harold Fuhung and the tech transfer office at Missouri was like, we already got a guy. Mm. And they gave me a license. I mean, not amazing? So at the time that you got the license through this kind of backdoor way, thanks to Time Magazine, (laughs) was it basically you and how many others were you working with in Maryland? Right. So we had a very small team. So I started the business um, and almost immediately started importing what I felt was the very best protein that I could find. Uh, and that came out of Asia because Asia, the, the Buddhist temples, they've done a lot of work on this for hundreds of years, right? And so I started to import uh, from a Taiwanese company a basic protein uh, that was like beef, right? And it was you know, soy and wheat. It wasn't very sophisticated, but um, I began to sell it to Whole Foods. We we would run it through um, very large kettles in a in a kitchen that we uh, rented out um, in the evenings from a restaurant. Um, and would sell it into to Whole Foods prepared foods uh, section. Now, how did you get into Whole Foods? I mean, you don't have a background in, uh, in right. and you don't have these relationships. Persistence, absolutely. Uh, you just call and call and call. When did you get your first investors, and who were they? I uh, funded the early part of the company. So How I, much? Like, yeah, I don't have the figure with me, but yeah, but, yeah far more than like over $100,000 for sure. And then uh, raised money from friends and, and family, and then... I got the license, and then I sent a note out to basically every venture firm that I could find. 
Right. And you didn't have any relationships pre-existing. No, no, mm-hmm. no. And this is from Western Maryland that you yeah. were writing to Kleiner Perkins. I did write and... to Kleiner, yeah. I, I emailed, and I remember the title of my email was a Prius for the plate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was not, not super effective, though. Um, <laughs> but, but Kleiner uh, reached out to Missouri independently. Um, and Missouri connected with me, and I've been through some tough, tough times with them, and I, I just I can't say enough good things about them. You were their first food-based investment. Yeah. Can you give me some more color on that first encounter? Sure. Two partners there, um, Ray Lane and then a junior partner named uh, Moldesponde, were the ones that looked at the company, and even they had to convince their own partners, like, this made sense, right? And, you know, it was sort of there were some kind of derisive perspectives on the company that, you know, this is sort of fake meat. What are you doing? But Ray was, and, and others on the board have always been there and said, no, let's, let's, get, let's get this done. Bill Gates is an investor. The Twitter founders, Ev Williams and Biz Stone mm-hmm. are, are investors. Right, yep. How did they come to be a part of this? I met Biz through Kleiner. And Bill Gates? Yeah, same thing. I mean... Uh, through you know, Kleiner. Yes. When we first had the meeting with him, I can remember being brief that, you know, he's going he's gonna to zero in on some sort of mathematical part of your presentation and ask you to do it, you know. And so I, I, like, studied, relentlessly studied my presentation to make sure that I wasn't caught off guard by some statistic or something. All the guy I wanted to talk about was his family, <laughs> how good the food was. He was, like, the nicest guy. Uh, so it was a wonderful meeting, and um, and we've gotten to know him you know, fairly well throughout this. So. so I want to talk about the actual meat. What did it taste like when you first started off, and now what does it taste like? Sure. I think what we got right in the beginning was the underlying texture of meat, so that that kind of striation and that resistance that you get when you bite into a piece of meat. But the um, taste wasn't there, but the taste, texture was there. No, the taste wasn't there. The you know, dis- distribution of fat was not there. Oh, yeah, the aroma was not there. The overall appearance was not there. It's still not there, actually. And so, yeah, I, again, it was like the whole balance of parts was missing. And so it's interesting. We kept working with food scientists to try to overcome that. But I feel that the real breakthrough that happened for us uh, was when we started to bring in a scientist from other disciplines, a fellow from, from Stanford, Jody Puglisi, um, who's the chair of the molecular biology department at Stanford Medical. That started to make real breakthroughs. Was there a breakthrough moment technologically on a chemical level? Yeah, for sure. The distribution of, um, of fat and water, for example. So we can take a, um, a, a piece of chicken, a chicken breast, or, or, or a piece of beef and put it under an MRI like you would your knee. And you can begin to study and understand exactly how water, fat, and, and protein are distributed. As you gain that more fundamental understanding, you can improve your products. Hmm. And so we didn't have that in the beginning. Any yeah. other example like that? So there's 600 molecules. There's 600 molecules that give the flavor uh, and aroma of meat, right? We have a, a system that allows us to try to identify what are the key drivers of those 600. But it's not only it's not only the, the presence of the molecules, how are they combining and reacting under heat? What has been harder for you than you thought? What in terms of building the business was harder for you than you thought? Getting out of the meat alternative section. Meat alternative section is not where you want to be. It's just a penalty box. It's a, it's a forgotten... Where would you like to be? In the meat case, which is where we are now. So we, we got into the meat case at Whole Foods, which has been transformational for our business. I mean, absolutely transformational. If you're looking at that in the um, frozen section versus what we sell in the fresh meat case, we sell about 13 times more in the fresh meat case because that's where consumers buy meat. Speaking of Whole Foods, uh, there was a recall, I think, in 2014. They were selling curry chicken, and accidentally they used uh, your chicken Chicken. (laughs) instead of uh, animal-based protein chicken. What happened? It was, yeah, for, 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 I think, three days or so. Um, They sold a, a basically prepared curry chicken dish 
and and so consumers were were eating our product thinking it was animal protein and eating animal protein thinking it was our product and they just got the labels wrong someone in the kitchen just got two bags and got the labels wrong um, and I think what that speaks to is when you put those early products of ours into something, they are pretty indistinguishable from, from animal protein. But so, na- naked, they're not. It, did any of the consumers realize that it wasn't? Uh, I don't know how it became discovered. I think someone finally realized the tags were wrong or something. That's uh, ironically good press it for you. It was a very good compliment, yeah. And yeah. Any, anything happened from that in terms of sales? or? Uh, no, one of, the, one of the big things that happened at that point in the company was I think a couple, like six months prior to that, a guy named Mark Bittman wrote a, a really flattering piece about the company and was on the front page of the Sunday Review in the New York Times. That changed everything for us. So Mark Bittman being the food critic yes. for the Times. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so he came out to, we were, at that time we were at a, a, a we, had, we took over a, uh, we took over a kitchen in an abandoned hospital in, in, in Western Maryland. And Bittman, through a friend of mine, Kathy Freston, had um, connected with me and said, I want to come see what you're doing. I actually went to his apartment and we, we served, we made him dishes of, um, our product and an animal protein equivalent. Where's it in, in Manhattan? Manhattan, yeah. And and we asked him to differentiate between which ones. And he, he had trouble telling us. Like, it was like seven dishes. He couldn't figure out which is which. He said, I want to come out and see how you do this. So he came out to the facility, drove him out there, and uh, he did this great piece, video, everything. And uh, and that, for me, I think, put the company on the map. How would your parents describe you? Um, my mom once said that uh, I'm big and can lift a lot. <laughs> uh Metaphorically? Metaphorically. Um, Is that what she meant? No, I think she actually physically meant it. Um, (laughs) You know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think they, I'm not sure. You know, I was a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of kind of um, Huck Finn. Like, the classes I didn't want to pay attention to, I didn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't become a really good student until I was in college. But uh, curious and and Mm -hmm. kind of full of life, I think, would be how I'd be described as a kid. Mm Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, sure. My guest has been Ethan Brown, founder of Beyond Meat. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs>